It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. Really excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Kurt Mortensen. Kurt is one of America's leading authorities on persuasion, negotiation, and influence. He has spent 15 years researching persuasion and motivational psychology, and he's the author of multiple books, including Persuasion IQ, The Laws of Charisma, and his best-selling book, Maximum Influence. Kurt, welcome to Accelerate. Thanks, Annie. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining me, and maybe take a minute, fill out the introduction I gave of you, and maybe tell us how you got your start in the whole persuasion, influence, negotiation business. I think because I was mad. <laughs> oh, there we go. I like that. <laughs> well, I, you mad get this as hell. Co- I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I did all this. Get a college degree. All right. Then I got a graduate degree in business. You get thrust in the workforce, and you realize, you know, I learned some great things in college, but man, it did not prepare me for the human side of business—the ability to persuade, influence, motivate, emotional intelligence, people skills, resistance. I mean, we all sell for a living. We all persuade for a living. And that valuable skills was just a footnote in a couple of the classes, a couple of the things that I learned. And so I had to go out and learn it for myself. And as I learned it, other people wanted to learn it. And so that was a big start. I needed it for me, and I was mad I didn't learn it. And then the other thing is, is out there learning things that were kind of offensive. I mean, some people learn persuasion or negotiation or even sales skills where uh, it just doesn't feel right. Well, yeah, I think that's certainly from a generational standpoint, that's that's how I was taught. And I would tell people that, well, they go out and learn these closing skills. I think, no, 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 closing skills is like trying to get a kiss after a bad date. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. If people don't like you and trust you, it doesn't matter if you have a clever phrase. And so those elements together, I just thought, okay, I've got to learn this, and I've mastered these skills and learned these skills, and I monitor top persuaders, and I, I get to interview people after they've lied to you, which is <laughs> a lot of fun. And so it's oh, just so you're talking fun. to political candidates. Though. Yeah. Well, I talked to them, too. I've consulted with them and, and just prospects in general, and it's interesting what they say to the persuader and what they say to me tend to be two very different things. All right. So you, you'd say there's a uh, Time to persuade, a time to influence, and a time to negotiate. So let's let's start by distinguishing between persuasion and influence. Ah, oh, great question. Well, influence is a higher form of persuasion. We'll say influence is who you are. That's your trust. That's your charisma. You don't need to be there for your influence to matter. Versus okay. persuasion is what you do when you say the tools, the techniques that you do in a situation when you don't have influence, when you don't have that relationship versus negotiation is... Well, so let me just clarify. So inf- influences is who you are, persuasion is what you do. Exactly, what you okay. do and say. All right, so influence really precedes persuasion. It does. If you have the, the relationship, if they know you, like you, and trust you, a lot of times they'll just do it because of who you are. You don't need any facts or figures or persuasion techniques to be able to do that. They're doing it because of who you are. All right. So what are the keys? Let's sort of break this down. What are the keys then to building influence? The key with anything is trust. Okay. Right? Trust is a critical factor, and trust is an all-time low. 20 years ago, it was, I trust you, give me a reason not to. Now it's, I don't trust you, give me a reason to trust you. And the big mistake that people make is, 
they think, well, I'm a trustworthy person, and, and good, I'm glad you are, but that does not mean people will trust you. All right, so you're saying that the, sort of the default mode that most buyers are in these days is, yeah, I don't trust you. Exactly. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not prepared to trust you. I'm not, I'm not going to give this trust willingly. So, yeah. so you're a sales rep. You got to start, you know, building this level of trust, or your company. You want to build this level of trust with your your customers, prospective customers. What do you do? Well, trust is. For, well, first of all, a lot of trust and influence in general comes from a subconscious trigger. It's just a feeling. I like them. I don't like them. I trust them. I don't trust them. That's kind of an amazing thing I found in my research. It could be the color of your clothes. It could be a smell. It could be how close you stand, a word you use. It could be a gesture. And so trust is the same type of way. In fact, let me just illustrate it with kind of an example here with a dentist. Everybody wants a dentist you can trust. And so I've quantified trust, what I call the five C's of trust. The first one is character, your honesty, your integrity. The second one is your competence, your knowledge, your intelligence, your ability. Because imagine if you move to a new area and you need this dentist, and you go to your neighbor and say, hey, can you recommend a dentist? They say, oh, I know a great dentist, great character, good person, belongs to my church group. They're just not very competent, though. Last time I was there, they stuck a needle completely through my cheek. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Don't think there'll be trust there. And you're like, whoa, whoa. So you go to another neighbor, say, recommend a dentist. They say, I know a great dentist, graduated top of the class, best in the state, very competent. But you're going to have to wait a few weeks because they're in jail for insurance fraud. You see, they don't have much character. They, you only need one feeling, they'll put in two, and they'll bill you for three, but they're the best feelings you can get. Right? There's a disconnect there, too. And then the third C, which is uh, compet- or confidence. you got to have confidence. Imagine laying in the dental chair, and the dentist comes in and puts in an x-ray, and they say something like this. I don't know. Uh, you see that gray area there? I think you need a root canal. What do you think? <laughs> I think you're running. <laughs> and then there's credibility, which is the most important out of all the C's. I mean, imagine walking into a dental office, seeing a, a degree from a country you've never heard of, sign on the wall, say cash only, no insurance, no credit cards. Dentist comes out in a black leather jacket, an actual tool belt, <laughs> and an actual hammer, <laughs> an actual drill. I think you would run because of credibility issue. And then congruence, of course, is the nonverbal behaviors we pick up when, when our actions don't match what we say. And when we put all those together, it increases our trust. Some is instant, some is earned, but it all comes together to earn that trust, which is influence. And when people trust you and accept you as the expert, influence is easy. Well, but also these things are, you said, I mean, some of the... The trust, obviously, there's there's perception that's that's formed. You know, I've done research on you know what how quickly people form perceptions and so on. But these five C's you list, these can be learned behaviors. Absolutely, they can be learned and should be learned. And that's that's kind of my message I bring to people is most people only have maybe four or five persuasion tools. There's over a hundred, and if the only tool in your toolbox is a hammer, we've heard it before. You treat everyone like a nail, and that's. Kind of my message is the challenge is as people's default setting is they tend to persuade people how they like to be persuaded. How they themselves themselves like to be persuaded. Exactly. They need to adapt and persuade the person how they want to be persuaded, number one. And number two is the moment somebody senses you're going to try to persuade them to do something, even though they need it, want it, like, and can afford it, they're going to resist you. you got to help them persuade themselves. And if you can put those elements together, life's much easier. Well, but isn't that really at the root of at least modern selling, right, is that and persuasion sounds a little coercive. 
to a lot of people, right? It's sort of like a used car salesman, you know, selling something people don't want. You're persuading them that they need something they don't really need. But to your point, especially with all the information that's available to people these days when they're buying products, persuasion really has a different, a different uh, slant to it than it used to. It does. It's more so indirect. It's more indirect, I think. It is more indirect, and it's changed dramatically. That's why a lot of those old skills don't work anymore in the way we persuade and influence. Because deep down, people want to be persuaded. They want someone to help them make the best decision possible. Well, that's why yeah. they're still salespeople. If they didn't, you know, everything would be bought online. Absolutely everything would be bought online. Exactly. Just go to the webpage, read it, and buy it. We need someone. And, and I believe this. This is something I tell anybody in sales is that you have a moral and ethical obligation to sell someone, to persuade them. And they're like, what? I said, well, if you believe in your product and you know you can solve their problem and you don't persuade them, somebody with an inferior product is going to sell them something that they don't need and want and it's not going to help them out. And you could have. You could have. Right. And so if you really believe in that, that's important. Well, let's take a step back. You had mentioned that, that people come out of school or any sort of professional training really unprepared with persuasion techniques. And why is that? I mean, why, why isn't this more at the heart? Because, I mean, certainly you read like, books like Dan Pink's book on, on To Sell as Human that fully two-thirds, three-quarters of all people in professional ranks say that part of their job is to influence others. That is the question of the day. <laughs> why not? Aren't these universities focusing on the soft skills, the people skills, the influence skills? When I teach workshops or seminars, I always get the main thing afterwards, after two or three days together, is why didn't I learn this in school? You know how much money I've lost? Do you know how many deals I've lost? And I think part of it is it's you know tradition to do the analytical studies. Part of it is, and I teach at a university, is that every professor teaches the most important thing in the world, <laughs> meaning that if it's not being taught, it will never be taught because they, they focus on what they do and that's the most important thing. And I understand that. But slowly, I know Harvard has added some sales courses to their MBA program. Yeah, they're starting to, yes. Yeah, they're starting to do it and see what's happening. And I think it's just awareness and people realizing that, yeah, no, I'm not getting to the workplace. They're not feeling prepared because of those soft skills that they didn't learn. Yeah, and hopefully I think the perspective of sales profession and being in what sales means is also evolving because increasingly it's, especially in, in the technology fields, it's increasingly it's a service profession. It is. And it used to be, oh, you're in sales. <laughs> and there's a lot more credibility out there now with the salespeople, needing salespeople, knowing what they do. It is. It's a valuable profession. And people are starting to realize that. All right. So you say that 95% of persuasion involves a subconscious trigger. So what is that trigger? It could be a variety of things. How close you stand to somebody, the color of your clothes, All right, so smell. things we talked about before in terms of influence and so yeah. on. Yeah. And here's one that people don't even think about, especially in sales, is word choice. Every word you use will attract or repel people. And people don't even think about that because they use the word all day long and it doesn't phase them. I mean, the best example I can think of is the airline industry. They train pilots for three days on how to use their voice and the words they can and cannot use. Because if you listen to even that video presentation – Listen to the word choice. They'll say, in the event of a water landing. You're like, hello? It's not when the plane hits the water and the wings rip off. That's called a crash, right? It's exactly. Or here's even, this is even worse. In case of cabin depressurization, right? Hello? That's, you're a 35,000 feet hole in the plane sucking everyone out, but hey, in the event. Yeah. If you reach for the barf bag, it says for motion discomfort. They don't clean a plane, they refresh it. There's no bathrooms, there's lavatories. The plane's not uh, late, it's delayed. 
And you'll never, ever hear a pilot say, uh, plane's broke. We're going to try to fix it. <laughs> it's always going to be mechanical difficulty. So it right. matters. Every word you use matters. All right. So, and you, yeah, that's one thing. So what about um, the importance of appearance these days? Because we start go through these waves with salespeople where it's casual, it's formal, it's casual. How do people really know what's the right thing to do? Well, you want to be similar to your prospect, the person that you're talking to. That's the first thing. Realizing that you can dress up a couple steps. I'd rather be dressed more dressed up than them than less. We know that blues and black, darker colors, contrasting colors are more credible. We know that, for example, it's not clothing, but cologne. We talked about smells. When people near the smell of a Cinnabon store, they're more likely to donate to a charity. And so a lot of salespeople want to put on cologne. They want to smell good. But that's a huge complaint. Too much, too much. I mean, you want to smell like you've taken a clean shower, but you have to look at all these external elements, the way you dress and how you smell and how you look and your demeanor, because those are those subconscious triggers that make the biggest difference. It sounds like Cinnabon should go into the clone business. <laughs> there you go. Just put, that's our message. Just put a little Cinnamon behind each ear. A little Cinnabon behind each ear. Go on your sales call. Go on your sales call. Or, or Betty, just bring a bunch of Cinnabons and then uh, <laughs> use the reciprocity factor and you'll be doing good. Gain a lot of weight, but hey, you'll make a lot of sales. All right. So one of the key things that happens in persuasion, influence, is handling objections. You say that you can get to yes when people say no. What if... A lot of times, I have a problem some with some of that perspective, depending on you know what your perspective is, I guess, but whether we agree or disagree. But, but yeah, sometimes no just means no. Oh, and sometimes it's refreshing to get a no, <laughs> right? You don't want to waste any more time. We wish sometimes as salespeople we'd get the no. If there's not a good fit there, give us a no sooner. But a lot of times we get it's too expensive, can't afford it, right? So it's 67% of the time it's a lie. Here's my perspective. Now, a no can be refreshing, but if you know there's a need and a want there and you know there's interest there, you don't want to get a no. And first of all, when someone says no, it's hard to turn it into a yes. So if you're feeling a no, but you want a little more time, say, let's revisit this in a couple of weeks. But here's, here's my message with that is when you look at your presentation and you look where you're getting a lot of no's, what's happening is what you're asking is too big. Let me share a study to kind of illustrate this. This is called foot in the door technique. So they went to college students and say, hey, will you participate in a sensory perception study Saturday at 6 a.m.? I mean, that's a huge ask, and only 24% of the students agreed to do it. Now, they use the foot in the door, get the little yeses. This is how it worked out. They said, hey, will you participate in a sensory perception study? Sure. It's a Saturday, on Saturday. Will you be there? Are you available? Yeah. 6 a.m., can you be there? Now, just by breaking down that big ask into three smaller yeses, it went from 24% to 56%. Meaning, if we can break down what we're asking, if we're getting a lot of resistance, what we're asking is too big, we need to break it down into smaller yeses, smaller yeses, smaller yeses, and that makes a big difference. Yeah, and, and it seems like it sort of aligns with like, uh, what Cialdini talks about in his book, uh, The Consistency Principle, right? Well, it part of it's the consistency principle, the foot in the door. Part of it, too, it's the subconscious that... Even when people move their head up and down in the yes motion, it persuades them. That's why you see on commercials when they're singing a song and there's a bouncing ball at the bottom of the screen. <laughs> that makes people go up and down in the yes motion. That makes it more persuasive. They put headphones on students. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, they put headphones on students and had them test them for quality. So they thought, and they were listening to rock music, and a third just sat there. A third went their heads up and down in the yes motion. A third went side to side in the no motion to test these headsets. And then there was a commercial to raise tuition. And the ones that went up and down were more persuaded about the raise in tuition than the ones that went side to side in the no faction. 
So it, there is something just about the physical movement of yes, getting the yes, and even those that negotiate, get the easiest yeses first, get that track record going, and it makes it much easier for them to continue to say yes, which is part of the consistency, part of understanding dissonance, and could make a big difference in your ability to persuade. All right, we well, use the word dissonance here. So you, you have multiple laws of persuasion, one of which is the law of dissonance. I thought we'd go through some of your laws of, of persuasion. So let's start with the law of dissonance. So what I mean, I know what dissonance is, but how does this apply to persuasion? Well, what dissonance does is you're helping people persuade themselves. And that's what dissonance is. When you are going against a commitment, if you're not getting the, let's say, the yeses, is something that's fascinating with dissonance is that, and well, part of it too is that if you create too much pressure, dissonance is kind of an internal pressure, kind of a rubber band stretching where people feel like they need to make a decision. If you do it too much, it's going to snap back at you. But a little pressure, a little fear can be very beneficial in the world of persuasion. That goes back to the foot in the door technique or getting the yeses, getting the commitment, understanding human nature. Because the bottom line is we, the human brain needs to be right. And if you prove that they're wrong, it's going to backfire on you sometimes. Well, that's, that's the dissonance. So then how do you get from the wrong to the right then? You help, you help them persuade themselves. For example, there was a study done in Canada by a couple, a couple of professors called Knox and Inkster at a horse racing track. And they interviewed people before they placed a bet. And they just wanted, and one of the questions was how confident they were in the horse they were going to choose. And then they interviewed them after they placed the bet. And the horse race hadn't happened yet. And they found that they were a lot more confident after they placed the bet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Because the human brain has to be right. And if you made a decision, it's the right decision. And that's why when you are in the sales process, getting those yeses, getting them to just to agree on two or three things and then fill in the blanks later. And here's why it's so important because most salespeople just tend to vomit on people. Here are the 14 reasons. <laughs> okay. Here are the 17 reasons versus if you can find the one or two reasons and they can make a commitment to, to then to do it, they're more persuaded. And this, this is why it's important is that. They're looking for every reason not to do business with you. But once you find the one or two reasons why they should, now they're looking for every reason why they should. and just changes the whole dynamic of it. Yeah, I and mean, that's the whole making emotional decisions for logical reasons, um, you know, coming up with justification after the fact. Exactly. But I think you're right. I mean, starting, starting very small is, uh, to me, is absolutely key. I've got a chapter in my book I talk about start small. When you, you know, start your new relationships with the smallest commitment possible. Yeah. Even if you lose money, even if you just just something, a yes or anything that you could do to get the ball rolling, even negotiation. That's why too many people in negotiation, they start with the hardest thing first, the money. Let's do something easy. How about a delivery date? All right. Let's agree on that. Right? Get the, just get the ball rolling like you mentioned. Start small. All right. So another law you have is the law of obligation. Good old reciprocity. You bet. And, and that's still real out there. Now, this interesting. This is in every culture around the world. You can go to a tribe in the Amazon jungles, and it still applies. When you do something for somebody, they feel an urge to do something back. Whether it's your time, whether it's a gift, whether it's anything, it's still very valuable. Now, you don't want it right before you're trying to persuade them to do something, but there's a bank account we all have. When you do something for us, we have an urge to do something back. Now, here's what's really interesting as I took a deep dive in reciprocity and obligation is that if you don't allow people to return a favor that you've given them, for example, if you've gave them 20 minutes of your time, people feel an urge to do something to repay that. If you don't let them, it actually hurts the relationship and it can damage your ability to persuade. 
All right, so let's let's put this in a, a sales context then. So what what would you as a salesperson give to a potential prospect to incur this this obligation or the and you know start the the reciprocity chain? Anything from well, let me do you a favor or give them some extra time or taking a call after hours or bringing in some donuts or bringing in the, you know, the whole specialty advertising industry, which is a billion-dollar industry, something with your company name on it. Anything you can give them, time, resources, even compliments is something that triggers reciprocity in people and, and makes a huge difference. Now, it doesn't guarantee you're going to persuade them. It just puts you on the top of the list. For example, I had this guy come into my office, and he wanted our office supply, and I said, we're under contract, and he said, would you mind if I left 12 hot chocolate chip cookies? I'm like, yeah, go for it. And we, I didn't even remember his name. We called him the cookie guy. He'd come by every couple of months, and he'd leave cookies, and uh, our contract was up, and it didn't guarantee we'll do business with it, but it put him on the top of the list, and, and uh, we knew what was going on, but it's part of human nature. We remembered him more, and when we needed office supplies, the cookie man got the business. Very interesting. So people with the reciprocity is people aren't talking about or aren't thinking they have to repay you in kind. It's just, as you said, there's a bank account in which they've occurred an obligation. People, we feel, but from a societal, and as you said, probably given how widespread this is across cultures, maybe even at some sort of DNA level, that, that we have to repay this obligation. You do, except for teenagers, <laughs> right? It is. It's ingrained in us. And the people like you more, but you have to let them repay. And again, not right before you need something. There's a little bank account there, but just do things a favor, a little time, listening to their story, ask you about their weekend. A lot of things you can do that could be very helpful. All right. Another one that was interesting was the law of connectivity. So, oh. what's, so what's that? Building rapport, getting people to like you. I mean, here's the amazing thing. We talked about trust earlier. Studies show that when people like you and trust you, there's an 88% chance of influence. Now, assuming there's a need and a want there, right? Sure, sure. So 88% chance. And here's the thing about a lot of the skills we talk about and the salespeople out there is there's a, something we get stuck on that's called the Wobegon effect, which is we think we're doing better than we actually are as far right. as the skills we're supposed to have. 92% of managers rate their managerial skills as above average. 90% of people rate their people skills as above average. 85% of high school seniors rate their driving skills above average, right? There's a, a disconnect there. And so with people skills, it's the same thing. I ask people in an audience to say, do you know that annoying person at work that nobody likes? You know that person that rubs you the wrong way? You know that person that thinks they're funny, but they're not? And everyone's like, yeah, we know that person. And I say, that could be you. And it gets really silent. And I say, it is you. You don't know. You, you can get along with people like you, but the ability to connect and build rapport and understand people skills and, and how to instantly get people to like you, that's power. And I'm talking to CEOs of billion-dollar corporations. I said, well, there was company A and B you needed to buy something from, and you went with company B, and they were identical at the same price. Why did you go with company B? And he thought about it. He says, well, I liked him better. <laughs> and it could come down to that. So connectivity is getting people to like you and building rapport. Right. So what are the key steps to building rapport quickly? Well, quickly, there's the attraction factor as far as how you look. You get judged on your clothing, your physical appearance. Things like beards can decrease that instant credibility with people. The way you're dressed, sunglasses, there's... Finding similarities, which a lot of people do, uh, especially in sales, but they do it the long, wrong way. What, what, finding something in common sparks a relationship, but a lot of people do it in the wrong way. There's two rules here. It has to be something relevant. Oh, you're a Gemini? 
I'm a Gemini too. That, that doesn't help if there's no relevance there. And it has to be something positive. Really? You're a convicted felon? Oh, oh me too. Felon. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's not going to work. And uh, then, of course, basic people skills there, a rapport, mirror and matching, all those things come into play to be able to connect. And again, people can connect with people like them. There's different personalities. We need to adapt and learn how to connect with everybody. Well, I think from a sales perspective, and really a human relationship standpoint, is asking questions and listening to answers can be one of the most powerful things you can do when you first meet someone. It is. If you can listen, and great persuaders listen three times more, and that's the, the secret of sales. If you can listen, they'll tell you everything you need to know to, to sell them, right? Well, especially if you what, ask the right questions. Yeah, if you ask the right questions. If you, you, in fact, you use their name. We've heard that before, old Dale Carnegie, but the MRI show, when you use someone's name, it actually triggers a pleasure center in their brain. And they like you more just by, you know, using their name every once in a while, asking the right questions, going from a salesperson to a consultant. We've all heard about consultative selling. That does. And you get to listen to someone, they, they automatically like you more, and you know how to persuade them. Interesting. So, okay. Uh, last one I want to talk about, law of social validation. Is that the same as social proof? It is. We have to borrow credibility. That was one of the Caesar's trust, the credibility. A couple of things interesting with credibility is – uh, what social validation does is you're borrowing credibility. So you can borrow credibility. And that's what social validation does. People will always believe other people before they believe you. So whether it's a testimonial, an endorsement, somebody recommends you, a referral, four out of five dentists, anything. We follow the group. That's a shortcut. That's important. That's, that's social validation. That's what builds credibility. But here's what's interesting about credibility, kind of a counterintuitive thing that a lot of salespeople don't think about is that people are so skeptical now, they're looking for something that's wrong with you, your product or service. And if you don't give them something that's wrong, they're going to find something, which is probably not even going to be true. So I tell people, give them something, a minor flaw, a weakness about you or your product or service, and people will trust you more and will give you more credibility. We see it in marketing all the time. Avis Renicar, we're number two, but we try harder, right? Listerine, the taste you ate twice a day. Smuckers with a name like that has got to be good. The Heinz ketchup, people complain it's too thick, and they say, yeah, it does take forever, but it's worth it because of the quality. Volkswagen in the 60s when they came out with the bug, this car's so slow you'll never get a speeding ticket. Was <laughs> their advertising, right? And so if you can reveal a minor weakness about you, your product or service, people trust you more, gives you more credibility, and again, it's counterintuitive, I would rather give them one than have them assign one to you. For example, if you were a, Small company going into a large corporation, that's a perceived weakness. They're going to find out anyway. Reveal it. Yeah, we're smaller, but you know what? Let's turn it into a strength. We're, we're more nimble. You won't fall through the cracks. You have my cell phone 24 hours a day. We work on the weekends. This is the main project we're working on right now. And turn it into a strength. It increases trust and credibility. Yeah, and here's a testimonial from a customer that we worked with, similar to you. Exactly. Then here's the testimonial, and you're borrowing credibility. Again, people, I know it's not fair, but people always believe other people before you because you have something to gain. So borrow that from other people, especially in a situation where you don't, you're not coming in with a lot of trust or a lot of credibility. Yeah, and I think that the other thing is in this day and age of online reviews, think about this context as you don't want all five-star reviews. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. We're so skeptical now. They're like, wait a minute, there's got to be something negative. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you need, need some four-star, three-stars in there. people, five-star. Oh, it's all family. Yeah, <laughs> all families. Friends books. and families, exactly. <laughs> all right. So every once in a while, a minor thing, it's always good to have. Exactly. Same, 
Same principle. Okay, well, great. Now we go into the last segment of the show where I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests. And are you ready? I am ready. Okay, here we go. So the first one is hypothetical scenario. In the scenario, you, Kurt, have just been hired as a VP of sales by a company whose sales have stalled out and they want to get spark of a turnaround going. CEOs anxious to get things unstuck and back on track. So what two things could you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? First thing I would do is uh, start doing some personal development with the sales staff. Because personal development is the first thing salespeople forget to do, and it's the most important. Because a Harvard study showed that, that those who are learning and growing every day, they're more optimistic about life. They're more enthusiastic about where they're going, what they're going to accomplish. But those who aren't learning and growing every day become very negative, pessimistic, and doubtful. And I would just start the training, uh, get people just the personal development, the, the self-persuasion, the mindset, the psyche, get people on track on that personal development. That alone Get them to listen to audio in the cars, training at work, makes the biggest difference. Learning and growing. I'm a big advocate of personal development, as you are, obviously. That would make the biggest difference, so that would be the first thing that I do. Okay. And the second thing? Second thing I would do is uh, start get developing the relationship, obviously, with the salespeople and start working on their, their sales skills. And the big one that's that makes a big difference with uh, a lot of companies right out of the shoot. First thing that we do, and I've done this with a lot of different companies, is just change the demeanor of the salespeople. And the way we do this is, and here's the challenge, is that people call up the company and say, I'm interested in your product, your service. And the operator says, great, hold on, let me transfer you to sales. <laughs> and they don't even think it through because they say it all day long, but that triggers resistance. And before they even talk to somebody, they're resistant. So we change it to consultant or, or rep or customer care, whatever it is. And that does a couple things. It, it doesn't get the resistance with the, the customer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it changes the mindset of the salesperson. They're not just a salesperson. They're a consultant. Right. right? And it just changes their demeanor. And it really empowers them to understand that they are a consultant for the company. They're not just a salesperson. As sometimes they think about themselves. They're a consultant and they're going to take care of this customer, and they're there to serve them. All right. Cool. All right. Good answer. So uh, some rapid-fire questions. You can give me one-word answers or elaborate if you wish. The first one is when you, Kurt, are out selling your services, what's your most powerful sales attribute? Most powerful? I'd say credibility. Who's your sales role model? Brian Tracy. Other than your own, what are one, what's one book that every salesperson should read? How Customers Think. By? Uh, Dr. Zoltman. Dr. Zoltman. Okay, I have to look that up. That's a new one for me. All right. Customers Think. And last question, what music's on your playlist these days? Uh, I'm a product of the 80s. Let's see. Uh, love uh, Van Halen, Depeche Mode. Mm-hmm. Anything that uh, from the 80s really uh, cranks me up. So a hairband type guy. Yeah, and that's just a shift recently because I haven't listened to them in years. I've been like, oh, you know, a little good, a little rock and roll there. You're going back to the basics. It's, it's always good to have a little rock therapy, I'll call it. That's right. I agree. So, well, good. Well, Kurt, thanks for being on the show today. Uh, tell folks how they can find out more about you. Go to uh, persuasioniq.com. You can find out more about uh, me. You can take a Persuasion IQ test to see how persuasive you actually are. You can see my books are listed there product services, influenceuniversity.com is also another place you can take a look at some of our training modules. Excellent. Great. Thanks again. And remember, friends, 
Make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And one easy way to do that is to make sure this podcast is part of your daily routine, whether you listen on your commute, in the gym, or as part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Kurt Mortensen, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.